Great, thanks very much. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I, I probably should point out that when I was first invited to come here, uh, I said, oh, that sounds like a bit of a misfit. I'd better say no, thank you very much. But I was uh, persuaded otherwise within a few minutes. So the next 40 minutes or so will demonstrate whether it was a good idea or not. So far, it's been great. So uh, hopefully uh, we'll uh, go on like that. OK, so uh, having heard that there was some interest around here in social mobility, um, I thought I would put uh, the other side of the story, uh, that the places change, um, and we might refer to that as deprivation mobility, particularly uh, as people move bef between different kinds of places. So places change their characteristics and people change their places. And that second uh, part of that is actually deliberately ambiguous. Uh, people move, but in so moving, they, they change the places that they, they go to and the places that they come from. So uh, there's some elements of that in what I'm going to talk about. So uh, this is me, uh, but uh, there will be some other um, uh, co-workers uh, mentioned uh, along the way of various studies. So uh, what drew me into um, some of this was, was the, the use of depri area deprivation measures uh, which often uh, link maybe individual records uh, to areas, uh, but only cross-sectionally. So they assume that uh, a point in time of what places are like uh, is applicable to uh, people over time. So what I'm going to do uh, in the first part of what I'm going to talk about is, uh, after a little preamble, uh, more than this one, is show how deprivation has been measured in a way which uh, allows changing levels uh, to be captured. And then I'm going to give uh, two or three examples of uh, individual level studies whereby changes in, in people's circumstances over time can be uh, related to their health. There's a couple of examples uh, thereby where it's self-reported health and one where it's a, a diagnosed condition. <coughs> so this is, this is just one example of uh, a study uh, which uh, takes deprivation in a cross-sectional way and presume that it's, it's applicable over time. Uh, what is actually nice about what this particular study has done is that they have actually acknowledged that there are limitations to what they've done. So this is simply um, linking types of food outlets, whether it's takeaways or supermarkets or whatever, to different levels of deprivation and showing how uh, different uh, proportions, the densities of these outlets, changes over time uh, in uh, part of Norfolk. Uh, so, um, and, and basically it's about, you know, you get more fast food takeaway, etc., etc., in, in more deprived areas. Uh, so their limitations, which they acknowledge, are the, the 2001 deprivation estimates, which is a kind of midpoint in the study, which is a, uh, an eminently sensible thing to do, uh, would best represent deprivation. However, this approach may have introduced some errors, so future studies should utilise data where this information has been captured at multiple time points. So if the places have also changed uh, over this time period, um, the situation might be more marked, it might be less marked. We can't necessarily know. Okay, so this is a kind of double entry bookkeeping uh, way of thinking about things that uh, we might link some kind of outcome data, whatever that may be, to the places, but the places change. Uh, the places change in terms of their uh, population age sex structure and also the socio demographic characteristics change the composition of those areas. So we take one, you know, any one area at, at two different time points, and between those time points, some people are born, some people are die, have died, some people have moved in, subnationally moved out, subnationally some international migrants might have moved in, some might have moved away. And basically those people might be actually quite similar to the people who've moved in and out, uh, but they might be quite different people. And it could also be that the people who don't move, the non-migrants, actually change their attributes. You become employed, you become unemployed, you get married, you get divorced, etc., uh, etc. Et so all these things that we might use in some kind of compositional deprivation or, or other kind of uh, composite measure uh, might change because the people change. And as we ourselves change our location, 
uh, we might be affected in some way, influenced by that type of area, by the people who live there, and by other environmental type of things. So it's kind of double entry bookkeeping uh, of the moving around. So in terms of deprivation, I think Peter Townsend's um, sort of uh, deprivation definition, a state of observable demonstrable disadvantage relative to the local community or the wider society or nation to which an individual family or group belongs. I think that's fairly standard accepted uh, deprivation measure. It's not necessarily just about poverty, it's not just about income, it's a sort of wider type of, of notion than just the financial aspect, but obviously that's a large part of it. So deprivation index is a single figure index that summarises information from several variables, each of which indicates something uh, relating to this thing we call deprivation. So it expresses the result, deprivation of area, relative to the national uh, situation and to other areas. So it's a kind of relative position thing. Uh, over the last few decades, there's been various schemes which have been devised and used quite widely. Um, some are more loved than others. Uh, there's the Jarman scheme, Townsend, Carstairs, Breadline Britain, and the more recent indexes of multiple deprivation. So all of these things are invariably cross-sectional, they're not comparable over time, uh, so a time series of health outcomes should have area characteristics change uh, incorporated with it. So what I've uh, worked on, uh, sort of two different rounds of this work, some a few years ago, some more recently, uh, to have a deprivation composite constructed to measure deprivation over time for small areas in GB. Uh, I can say why not necessarily UK, uh, should somebody wish to know at some stage, and to have a fairly long time run of this from 1971 to 2011 at each of the 10-year census time points. And part of that, a large part of that, is to have geographical consistency, to cope with boundary changes, and to have change in deprivation uh, measured in a way which captures whether places uh, improve their deprivation position or get worse or whatever. Okay, so based on some of the work I did uh, previously, um, looking at the health deprivation relationship and uh, that places change, when we've looked at places uh, that have changing area deprivation, uh, areas that have improving uh, deprivation uh, over and above how other places might be, uh, we have a, a better position for those areas in terms of uh, infant mortality uh, and in terms of cancer survival. So uh, registration survival uh, seems to be better in places that actually improve their uh, circumstances. Whereas areas in persistent disadvantage uh, tend to have the worst uh, self-reported health and mortality uh, and the persistently advantaged places have the sort of best uh, health outcomes. It, it sort of makes intuitive sense, uh, but it is demonstrated that changing deprivation does relate to uh, changing health of areas. Okay, there are, there are myriads of geographies uh, we can use and it's extremely confusing for people who meet this kind of thing for the uh, first time, but lots of definitions are used over time. We have smaller areas, larger areas, uh, and so on, uh, but um, the sort of older geographies that have been used for this type of work might relate to electoral wards and might be census enumeration districts. Um, We've moving sort of through the use of postal sectors more in Scotland than elsewhere, and what are now termed output areas. And we, most of the uh, sort of analytical administrative geography for this kind of work is based on what are called super output areas in England and Wales and data zones in Scotland. So um, all these terms are, as I say, a little bit confusing, but. I, tried to sort of scheme this out from older to newer terms and from smaller to larger geographies. And there's a lot of crossover between what is driven by the census in terms of data collection and dissemination uh, and in terms of electoral geographies and in terms of vital statistics for which we get the release of um, births and death data and things like that. So they are intertwined to a, a large degree and they should be. 
Okay, so the work that I've done, uh, whilst I've used car stairs deprivation uh, for some of the work, uh, for these sorts of long-run time comparable measures, uh, I've been using the constituents of the Townsend Index and, and uh, effectively using the same kind of calculations uh, as has been used. So we've got inputs of uh, percentage unemployed, non-homeowners, no access to a car or van, and household overcrowding, which is more persons than room. I should stress that this is a very UK-centric type of notion of deprivation. An international flavour would, would look at this quite differently. Uh, so uh, these things are perhaps log-transformed. They're standardised using Z-scores, and they're summed uh, to produce a single-figure index. So the traditional type of deprivation measures, such as Jarman Towns and car stairs, were mainly for the ward geographies. One of the disadvantages of these is rather uneven population distributions. Uh, the more recent deprivation measures have been mainly for these lower super output areas and similar sort of synthetic geographies, which are uh, devised to try and represent uh, population uh, better. Uh, at a more local level than perhaps wards which are created for different reasons. Uh, so you do actually end up with a more even population distribution. There are other pros and cons which we need to worry about particularly. Um, and in terms of chunking up the data, we often divide these continuous index scores into quantiles, often quintiles, fifths of the distribution. Uh, this is for convenience um, and simplicity and other kinds of reasons, but again there are pros and cons of quintiles, deciles, cutoffs, and all, all these kinds of things. Okay, so the time frame of, of uh, a set of resources that I've created uh, are the census years 1971 through to 2011, uh, the geography is the coverage is, is Great Britain, England, Wales and Scotland, uh, no disrespect to Northern Ireland, but there are reasons why not. Uh, and using the LSOAs for England and Wales and the data zones for Scotland, uh, the inputs to the Townsend deprivation scheme and a, um, uh, a deprivation calculation which is comparable over time, which I'll explain in a few minutes. <coughs> so that one of the biggest data preparation challenges is to get things into a consistent geography. If you're not comparing uh, an area defined the same from one time point to the next, you, you don't know whether it's something to do with the boundary definition, it's a bigger, smaller area or something like that, that is actually creating the comparison result. Uh, so having a consistent geography is uh, sort of paramount for this kind of work. Uh, so just uh, as an example, this happens to be the north end of Birmingham. Um, this is a, a park uh, where nobody lives. Um, and um, these are the 1991 uh, enumeration districts, so the smallest um, zones of census data release in that year. And there are, there are differences. Uh, none of the census geographies are consistent from one time point to the next. This is the population distribution as emulated by the postcode distribution. So these are postcode points. The different size blobs are because different numbers of addresses are at each postcode. So this then is a, um, a representation of the population distribution such that uh, you, you don't have any postcodes that fall within the park. There will be a postcode for the park, uh, but it probably has uh, one address or something like that, the, you know, the caretaker's cottage kind of thing. Uh, so we can see that you know, it's a bit sparse there, which you know, sort of links in with those areas. So to take any data for that, you sort of use this to weight how much is in uh, each of the intersections of the zones to convert into this, which is the 2011 uh, LSOAs um, in that north part of Birmingham. And we can see, uh, for some reason, they've decided to uh, cut across the park in a different kind of way. So it apportions the data uh, that may or may not fall you know, this particular area and these particular areas are converted into those new areas. So that's for 71 through to 2001, all converted into the 2011 geography. So um, what we need to do for that is take numerators and denominators. So we don't actually convert percentages because that doesn't actually work. So you take you know, the numbers of unemployed and the numbers of people who are 
um, economically active as the uh, denominator. You convert those from their original geographies to the 2011 geographies. You've then got uh, comparable data geographically. Okay, so we need to capture the changing deprivation now. Uh, for each of the input, four input variables, we express those as z-scores, uh, so uh, they are then uh, on the same kind of scale, comparable to each other, and to calculate a z-score, you take the uh, observation of the particular area, subtract the mean of all areas, and divide by the standard deviation, that's how you get a z-score. Z-scores are used in uh, lots of other situations uh, as well, so standard scores and uh, there are other ways of doing that, uh, but these schemes use z-scores. So that's how the cross-sectional um, z-scores are calculated. So this, this is all the data for, for those uh, particular years for uh, unemployment. Uh, so what we have here is, is a cross-GB. Uh, we had rising unemployment, then falling, and then slightly rising again. So that, that's, that's real data. Uh, the top row is in fact a fictitious area that's reduced by one percentage point its uh, unemployment at each successive census. So if you lived in that area or you were a councillor or something like that, you say things are getting better, you know, we're reducing unemployment. Uh, however, because in a cross-sectional sense, if you calculate uh, the z-scores, you're always expressing relative to the national situation. So uh, if a z-score is more positive, that's relatively more deprived, more negative, less deprived. So we go less deprived, whoopee, we're doing well, uh, less deprived, but then actually <coughs> become apparently more deprived. And so we've got a bit of an upsy-downsy because we're uh, comparing to the national each time and the national changes. So the place kind of is improving, but doesn't appear to be improving, or it's a bit of a wavy path. If we take the average of all areas across all the years, so the average of unemployment across all five censuses was 6.08, standard deviation 3.94. So we take 8 minus 6.08 divided by 3.94, we get a z-score of 0.49. So that's positive, it's slightly worse than the national, slightly worse than the national, around national, so we get around zero, and we're better than, and then better still. So we're actually expressing our area better uh, in this way compared with a cross-sectional sense. Okay, everybody reasonably okay with that? Good. Okay, I won't test you on it, don't worry. Okay, so um, we have different levels of each of these variables, which is one of the reasons to use the z-scores. Uh, but they're equally weighted in the final index, so, so they're, they're considered of equal importance. You know, that's a debatable point, but that's the way the Townsend scheme is set up. So the, the red peck line at the top is the percentage of non-home ownership uh, at national level. Uh, then the green line, no car. The blue peck is unemployment, and the purple thing is household overcrowding. So those are the sort of relative levels and the trajectory of those input variables over time. So non-home ownership is gradually falling, think through the periods of increasing uh, home ownership and all that kind of thing. Yet during the uh, 2000s, recession, um, you know, buy to let, a few things like that creeping in. So in fact, it's a slight upturn in non-home ownership. Uh, no car, actually not a similar trajectory. Lots more people own their cars over the, the years. We don't know what value the car is. Might be a wreck, might be a Rolls Royce, we don't know. But it's whether or not you have access to a car. And again, it's a slight upturn in the 2000s. Household overcrowding probably bottoms out in 1991, continues steady as she goes. Unemployment is the more volatile of uh, any of these inputs. And 81, 91 recession periods coinciding with the census. So we get that sort of uh, inverted U and then a very slight rise to 2011. Okay, so we have some differences between uh, England, Wales and Scotland. Scotland is higher, partly because of home ownership situations over the years and so on. But uh, over time we've got a 
an easing of deprivation measured in this way and a slight upturn between 2001-2011. What this is doing is sort of comparing successive years and uh, over time. So, so that's correlation matrix of the top of 71 compared with 81, 91, 2000, 2011. Uh, so we can see there's a strong positive correlation uh, between you know, the distribution of deprivation at each census. And we've got the strongest correlation between successive censuses, and you can see then that 71 compared with 2011 is a less strong correlation, but it's still fairly strong given that that's quite a number of years between um, those time points. Uh, but we can see you know, a very great similarity in the correlation of distribution of deprivation uh, over time. Because we uh, use quintiles, fifths of the de uh, deprivation distribution, often in this kind of health-based and other work, this then is categorising into uh, quintiles. If you're on the leading diagonal, that's somewhere that's in the same level of deprivation uh, between, this is the start and end point, I should have said, 2000, uh, 1971 to 2011. So some places are persistently advantaged and some places are persistently disadvantaged. Uh, anything here is uh, sort of upwardly deprivation mobile and these are downwardly deprivation mobile. So a social mobility matrix would often be uh, sort of expressed in the, the same kind of way. That these are the people who stay in the same social class and these are the people who improve and these are the people who go down. So it's, it's, it's showing it in the same kind of way. So what this, this shows is there's, there's a large number of areas which, measured in this way, improve uh, their level of deprivation, <coughs> but there are still reasonable numbers which uh, you know, get worse over that particular time period. Okay, so we can map what's going on. Uh, on these maps, the green are the uh, least persistently least deprived areas in 1971, and 2011. So it's just the start and end uh, time points. Any of the white areas uh, are places that improve, and we can see that uh, apparently it's just about everywhere. There are obviously exceptions because there's some colour on the map. Uh, the blue areas become more deprived, and the red areas are persistently the most deprived areas. So just two examples of uh, places that, that stood out to me in doing this exercise as being uh, interesting. Uh, Glasgow obviously gets uh, a bad press uh, about its, its health record uh, and we have got you know, through the city uh, a lot of persistently deprived uh, areas uh, yet we have on the sort of outskirts um, some areas which are of persistent advantage. Uh, the blue areas are the ones that get more deprived over time. Again we've got London there. Um, the Green areas in the sort of stockbroker belt and uh, London Green Belt and all that kind of thing uh, are you know, some of the particularly nice areas socio-demographically in terms of deprivation. Uh, we've got this sort of swathe of areas uh, in this sort of inner London and so on which are persistently deprived over time. But that sort of suburban uh, effect of, of areas that are actually becoming more deprived over time and other people have observed this about the, the London suburbs uh, that, that actually there the seem to be uh, a few sort of social problems going on um, that weren't there before. So, you know, housing built in the 1920s, say with the spread of the London underground and all that kind of thing, you know, quite nice middle class, well to do, da 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 da. Sorry, it's where I was brought up, so uh, I've escaped. Uh, doesn't appear to be doing so well uh, measured in this way. <clears throat> we can look at specific places using um, the data uh, that we, we have here. Uh, Milton Keynes, uh, anybody who lives here always insists on calling it Milton Keynes Village because they don't want to be associated with the new town. Uh, but uh, you know, there are various, that's the sort of shopping centre and that's uh, some of the uh, estates in Milton Keynes. So what we've got here is Milton Keynes by the same lowest input out area geography as of 2001, 
but showing the change over time. Uh, so 1971, um, Milton Keynes, I think, was founded in 1967, uh, but there weren't many um, uh, cutting of uh, salts uh, and building anything uh, when the 1971 census was taken. So what you've actually got here is a deprivation distribution in 1971 that, that kind of reflects a, a more uh, agricultural or, or the back end of it being uh, an agricultural area. So, so this part here is, is what would now be the centre of Milton Keynes, that the smaller polygons tend to uh, be representative of urban areas because of population size, and that the larger polygons tend to be more rural areas. Uh, so whenever you look at maps like these, that's a straightforward interpretation. So the centre of Milton Keynes is here and appears to be less deprived, and actually the more rural areas at that stage were more deprived. I guess if it was just about to be built on in some way, shape or form, probably the farms were uh, closing down and all that kind of thing. Really, really quickly in Milton Keynes, you get the kind of you know, urban and inner city deprivation and the slightly more affluent uh, external parts. Really, it sorts itself really, really quickly into a fairly standard urban structure. But we do see a lightening of the map uh, as Milton Keynes apparently gets less deprived over time, measured in this way, and then by 2011, a slightly more deprived area. So we've got the inputs there for uh, Milton Keynes uh, on average as a whole, and these are the distributions of the LSOAs in uh, Milton Keynes, uh, that's the standard deviation of the deprivation score. So some of the worsening is the non-home <coughs> ownership. So there's something about buy to let or something like that going on in Milton Keynes uh, to sort of have a uh, having had an improving deprivation situation to have a bit of an upturn. We could do that with um, any local authority, do a little case study if we wish. Okay, so my sort of interim reflection uh, is that um, health studies are regularly stratified across deprivation, a time series across cross-section is common. It'd be much better if we could uh, look at health change in relation to uh, deprivation change. We need these geographical and measurement consistencies. So it's long-term, 10-yearly change reveals a general reduction, but the relative position of areas is, is pretty entrenched. Caveats about measured in the right way, the geography, the input variables, etc. Uh, we miss the intervening years. Okay, so um, how might health change uh, in relation to deprivation change? We, what we might do in a sort of health inequalities way, this is limiting long-term illness, self-reported, and we might therefore be saying that the gradient across quintiles in 1991 has uh, increased over time uh, by 2001. We might use the ratio of this to this to show uh, an increasing uh, inequality. So might this change in gradient be due to um, population migration? We've got a relationship between health and deprivation, such as I've just shown. Uh, we've got a relationship between migration and health. Majority of migrants are young, relatively healthy, some people may or may not move because of their health. Uh, a migrant's health may, may be affected by the process. Migrants may spread disease. The last two uh, of those are slightly aside to uh, what I'm talking about here. But we do get a relationship between migration and deprivation. More advantaged people move to or between less deprived, more attractive locations. It could be that less advantaged people tend to drift into or be trapped in more deprived locations. So what we have here is using the Office for National Statistics Longitudinal Study, also used for social mobility uh, studies, uh, and these are the people who uh, move uh, over uh, the 10-year period uh, but are always in the least deprived areas. These are the people who move but they're always in uh, the most deprived areas. These are the people who move in to the least deprived, these are the people who move away. And we have a difference between these people. These people have less good health than these people. 
The same is also true of the movers into the most deprived areas. They have worse health than the people moving away. So some of that is driving that health inequality. The similar kind of effect, but not quite the same, is for the people who don't move. So if you stay in the same place uh, and it's a most deprived area, your health will be uh, poor. Uh, if you stay in the least deprived area, your health will be good. There isn't quite the same effect of the people whose areas change their deprivation while they stay put, uh, but there are some patterns which, which we can show with other health conditions like this. But the position for the migrants is uh, more marked than the non-migrants, and because most people actually move house over a 10-year period, uh, we can therefore conclude that a lot of this is about uh, the changing gradient is about people uh, moving. So. Uh, the area health deprivation relationship is at least maintained or more exaggerated than if nobody moved uh, or if areas didn't change their level of deprivation. However, that for sort of all persons of all ages controlling for age structure, looking at the moves by different ages showed that people of different ages moved in different directions. And what we noticed was that uh, unhealthy elderly migrants actually moved from more to less deprived areas. So there's a sort of countercurrent to what you might expect. So uh, with Paul Boyle, who's some of you might have known as chief exec of uh, ESRC, he's now vice-chancellor of uh, Leicester University, but he was one of my PhD supervisors some years ago, uh, we started to wonder whether health inequalities were the same at all ages. And this is um, using the ratio of the most to the least deprived uh, areas. So anything above one is uh, an inequality. Anything towards one is equality. So this is mortality to show that uh, there is uh, a difference for uh, the very youngest in terms of mortality, so an infant mortality uh, effect of deprivation. As you move into sort of young adulthood, we move towards parity. Uh, some of that is because, um, as we'll see in a few minutes, um, you tend to find that young adults tend to live in uh, more deprived areas. Um, it's not about them being deprived as such, it's just cost of housing or study or, or that kind of thing. But in midlife, uh, we have an inequality uh, for um, deprivation, but then for the elderly, we move back to parity again. So there was a paper by Chris Nibbon and Frank Popham that sort of alerted me to this, so which is why I picked this particular way of showing things from. So I thought, well, is that true for limiting long-term illness, self-reported? It's, it's effectively the same kind of pattern, that we move towards parity for young adults and for the elderly, but in midlife we have the greatest inequalities. So... The assertion here is that population migration may redistribute the population such that the health uh, deprivation relationship varies with age. This is based on the sort of types of areas people typically move to and from at different ages and that the migration process in itself is health selective uh, of good health and of poor health to some degree. So again, using the ONS longitudinal study, sort of aggregating people by age at two different time points. Okay, so uh, there's several slides that do this. Once you get your eye in, it's fairly straightforward. These are people who are aged 0 to 9 in 1991. These are those same people 10 years later. So 0 to 9 to 10 to 19 transition. So that's the deprivation distribution of those people uh, at that younger age. That's their distribution uh, 10 years later. So we have a slight bias towards people when they're very young, living in more deprived areas, that equalises in their teens. If we take the odds of uh, reporting limiting long-term illness, might be parental reporting for them, we have a tiny gradient which slightly increases, but there's not an awful lot going on. So we have a small gradient uh, of uh, deprivation health going on there. These are people who were 10 to 19 in 1991. These are those people uh, in their 20s 10 years later. So we have a very similar distribution of people of the same age but in different years. 
these people, when they hit their 20s, are, are moving to live in more deprived areas. Okay, so that's you know, consistent with first house, flat, renting, studying, not always the nicest areas. However, it doesn't seem to affect anybody's health, particularly, that you know, despite the deprivation, there isn't a huge uh, sort of gradient of, of health going on. This is just healthy people living in somewhat deprived areas. So these are people in their 20s, moving into their 30s, and they move away from deprivation to some degree. And we actually get a huge hike in the deprivation gradient in those 10 years. So as people sort themselves away from deprivation, there's some kind of change in where people are living such that we uh, develop a big health inequality. Again, 30s into 40s, um, again, even more so to less deprived areas, and again, we get the same uh, change that in changing, we increase the health inequality. There's not an awful lot going on between 40s and 50s and 50s and 60s that people are living in the same kinds of areas. That's not meaning that people are not moving, but it means that, largely speaking, the geography of deprivation of where people live is pretty much fixed once you hit those kinds of ages. So what we get is actually no real changes for people at those kinds of middle-agey life uh, stage. 60s into 70s, there's a slight shift into slightly sort of middle ground of deprivation going on, but we kind of flatline the change in deprivation. Same is true, 70s into 80 plus, you know, we end up with almost no relationship. And that's because the elderly are more likely to move when they are ill, they might be moving into care or into uh, relatives and that kind of thing. And it's just a case of where you can live and, and there isn't a deprivation gradient in that way for the elderly. Okay, so this is that sort of put people back approach. You know, if people have been living in the same place, uh, what would the uh, inequality look like? Allowing people to move as they have done. And we get the change, it's that section in the middle there, the difference between the red line and the blue line is the health inequality due to people moving. So we get this kind of parity in the 20s. Most people are pretty healthy in their 20s. I'm looking at a room full of people in their 20s and 30s. You're all a pretty healthy bunch to me. Uh, and uh, it's as people move in midlife, uh, you know, their advantage careers and that kind of thing that appears to pull things apart. When people are older, they're more likely to be ill anyway, so we don't have the same kind of deprivation rate. Okay, so my second interim uh, reflection. The migration through the life course has strong repeated patterns of moves between differently deprived uh, areas. And there's an, actually there's a, a similar urban-rural pattern to this as well in suburban. So re-aggregating individual records across quintiles shows limiting long-term illness, inequalities are greatest in midlife. However, what hasn't been done here is no explicit allowance for the longitudinal effects for the individual. So, so when I say to put people back, what this doesn't have is a control for where you were living and where you are living, so some kind of interaction of that, which would be a sensible and interesting uh, thing to do. What you don't know is, is how long people in that intervening uh, period have spent, should you have 1% of this and 99% of that, or 50-50 or whatever. We can't know because we don't know from census. So the time increments of a 10-year situation, we get these fairly clear patterns, um, but you know, 0 to 9, 10 to 19 is that sensible cohorts and this kind of thing. So we can you know, sort of query what, what's gone on there. So what about the intervening years? So there's a couple of examples now uh, of case studies of, of using similar kinds of approaches. This is much more about the individual and their experience of uh, living in different kinds of places. So this is just a couple of vignettes uh, to show you some other work which is uh, going on. So um, using the uh, British birth cohorts, two of them, I'll show you something in a second. 
So the cohort study data, the sweeps of the cohort studies are not necessarily in census year, and the other thing you have to cope with is the not even time increments and, and things like that. So, but there's plenty you can do uh, with cohort studies. Uh, and then some examples of uh, New Zealand data on cardiovascular disease uh, where we've got much more detailed time increments. So that's when we move on to something which is diagnosed from these self-reported type measures. So this is work I'm involved with, uh, with some people at uh, UCL, funded by the Leverhulme Trust, uh, not incredibly generously, um, but um, there you go. Uh, so Stephen Jiffran, Joe and Nicholas and Emily Murray, who are at UCL, they're at a closer conference uh, today and yesterday, presenting some same kind of thing, uh, and myself. So how important are neighbourhood effects across the life course on health and well-being? So there's a lot more going on than the two or three slides I'm about to show. Okay, so these are using the 1958 Child Development Study and the British Cohort Study for 1970. So these birth cohorts, uh, the 1958 cohort is the first week of March 1958, so uh, these cohort members are about to celebrate their 60th birthday uh, next year, and there have been sweeps of data at various time increments, 1970 the same. So this is the same stable as the Millennium Cohort uh, as well, so the same kind of idea as to what you do and why you do it, uh, and so on. So using the uh, deprivation measures uh, that I've developed, we've had those linked to people's individual records uh, by the UK Data Service, and that's a fight in itself. Um, so we can see the level of deprivation that these cohort members have been living in at different time points of their lives. Uh, so uh, what is available on both of these studies, there are more things than this. Uh, Self-rated health in general, would you say that your health is excellent, very good, good, fair or poor? So, uh, left-hand side, National Child Development Study, 1958, British Cohort Study from 1970, uh, and this is the uh, deprivation distribution uh, using the index scores um, of uh, where people were living at the different sweeps of the study. So we've got collection of age 16, 23, 33, etc. So these people are older. Uh, this is the newer study, uh, so we haven't got... Um, up to the same kind of age by definition. But what we have got, uh, quite interestingly, is even from age 16 uh, to age 23, a slight, sort of slight shift in the median of, of deprivation, a slight sort of uh, wider distribution of people uh, across deprivation. So a marginal uh, worsening, perhaps, of the deprivation circumstance from age 16. Uh, but what we then see in the 30s and 40s is uh, an improvement in the distribution of people across deprivation. So it's similar to that that we've seen with the longitudinal study, that once people hit their 30s and 40s, uh, they uh, improve, on average, their deprivation experience, but it's not the same for everybody. Uh, and a similar kind of thing is true of the um, 1970 cohort, that there is a slight improvement uh, of people's position uh, on average in their 30s. This then is uh, <coughs> probability of poor, uh, poor rated health by deciles, so the uh, least to worst, so the, 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 the darker columns here are the least deprived areas, and the most deprived are the uh, lighter grey bars. So we can see uh, we could divide one by the other to do an equivalent uh, inequality uh, measure to the previous stuff I showed. But we can see that the inequality decreases uh, in the 20s, but then increases through the 30s into the 50s. And the same is true but a slightly younger age uh, for the cohort study. So we've got a similar kind of thing uh, going on with the cohort studies. So the sort of summary of just that little bit, uh, the cohorts have something of a general shift towards less deprived areas by midlife. Uh, poor self-reported health inequalities are least for young adults, 
but increasingly in midlife, uh, and there's much more ongoing work with those data sets uh, as I speak. Okay, so with uh, Nicola Shackleton and Dan Exeter, who are both at the University of Auckland, and Fran Darlington-Pollock, who's at the University of Liverpool, uh, Dan and I shared Paul Boyle as a PhD supervisor and have continued to keep in touch. Fran was one of my PhD students. Uh, Nicola, coincidentally, uh, actually comes from uh, about two or three miles from where I now live, so we have a crossovers of conversations. Uh, but she works with Dan uh, in Auckland. So this is uh, about cardiovascular disease uh, in New Zealand. Okay, so uh, cardiovascular disease is one of the leading causes of death globally, and there are marked uh, variations between uh, ethnic group, and some early work uh, that Dan did uh, found that residential mobility was an important determinant of CBD in Auckland. So that was just for the city, uh, which we've then expanded to be the whole of New Zealand. So what we were interested in was the importance of the deprivation mobility change for the migration health uh, relationship, uh, and also that there were differences in the migration patterns between ethnic groups in New Zealand, and as happens uh, here and lots of other places, Part of the advantage, disadvantage of different groups is uh, the places in which they live. Uh, so, so some groups are rather marginalised to the level of deprivation in which they live, their chances of moving, uh, and so on. Okay, so we have this data set that is known as VIEW, the vascular informatics using epidemiology and the web. So it's one of these wonderfully contrived uh, acronyms. Uh, there's lots of data available, but uh, predominantly uh, that we've been using uh, someone's sex, their age by um, broadish bands, uh, their ethnicity. Uh, it's called prioritised because uh, you can um, assign yourself more than one ethnicity in New Zealand, but they have a way of determining which they will use. Uh, <coughs> we've had hospitalisations of CBD events, and we've got deprivation quintiles uh, using uh, a New Zealand kind of equivalent to uh, IMD. Again, quintile one least deprived, quintile five most deprived. And what we've got on this data set, it's a big data set. We've got nearly uh, two and a half million individuals enrolled in New Zealand primary health organisations. It's effectively a population study rather than a sample. Um, Restricting the ages between 30 and 84 because the risks are different uh, by the side of that. But what we've actually got is uh, people, uh, we're tracking them uh, during 34 calendar quarters. So we've got quite fine grained time increments on this uh, between 2006 and 2014. So uh, there are some rather sparse uh, bits of this. Uh, in terms of you know, not full data recording, but it's a very, very large data set. So rather than just this start-end position, which uh, we've used quite a lot, uh, what we're looking at developing was trajectory analysis uh, to see, to use this fine-grained uh, data per uh, calendar quarter. So we were interested in comparing the CBD risk for movers according to the deprivation trajectory. So uh, the first line at the top, stayers uh, don't move during the observation period. They stay in the same level of deprivation and, as far as we're aware, in the same house. Churners, people who move at least once, but actually they stay within the same level of, of deprivation in the same kind of area. Whereas these movers are, are going to an area with a different level of deprivation. So uh, we take all that um, categorical ordinal data and there's a stator uh, module that you can use to look at the trajectories. So these are the trajectories. So these are people who were in the least deprived areas and just become a little bit more deprived. These people from um, sort of mid-deprivation up to the most deprived uh, and different moves. Uh, and that's the distribution of... Uh, the people across these. So what we've got here, and, and sort of think back to 
stay as a movers from my longitudinal study kind of work, that people who just stay put have the, the kind of uh, deprivation relationship to CVD that we kind of get with uh, most things. Uh, the churners, these are the people who stay in the same level of deprivation. So people who move within these deprived areas have the best uh, health outcomes, and the people who move within the most deprived areas of everybody has the worst health outcomes. And that is absolutely the same as the self-reported health uh, in the uh, LS, and there's something in between. And these trajectories are then, you know, concomitant with uh, what you'd expect uh, you know, judging by you know, these kinds of patterns going on as people's circumstances uh, improve from where they were or, or get somewhat worse. So this is uh, you know, a, a very interesting finding and it's actually astounding that it's kind of so similar to the start-end periods and things like that and, uh, that we've used um, elsewhere. Okay, so um, as I've just said, the differences for Sayers and Churners is similar to other health investigations. Uh, this trajectory analysis, as far as we're aware, is a novel approach, uh, but the health relationships are analogous to the start-end combinations that we've used uh, elsewhere. So the developing research of this will be to look at an ethnic stratification uh, of commonalities of this trajectory analysis, not just to, to actually run separate trajectories by uh, different ethnic groups rather than just stratify the existing trajectories by ethnic groups, there's a, there's a difference. Uh, and to you know, hopefully try and capture some of the reasons behind the move and whether it was favourable or unfavourable. One of the things that has been wondered is, is the stress of moving related to cardiovascular disease, that, that kind of thing. So it's it's the before and after type of thing. Uh, so just finally then, uh, over time, uh, the geography of uh, non and uh, deprivation is entrenched. Uh, this inequalities by age is a newish agenda that we have different health inequalities at different ages. And I think it's going to be interesting to look at that at, at, by different uh, health conditions should we be able to get uh, data that supports that. Uh, the resource uh, that I've developed for area deprivation includes population density too, uh, is available for others to use. Uh, we've used it to link individual records in the cohort studies and longitudinal studies. Uh, you have to say about you know, the Townsend deprivation over time, the caveats are measured in this way, that they are decennial time points, they don't capture the intervening years. Um, but through some of this work, we've identified that migration through the life course has strong uh, repeated patterns of moves between different deprived areas and also sort of urban-rural type moves. Uh, there are different risks of, for people moving between or staying in different levels of deprivation, but actually it's largely concomitant with what we would expect uh, depending on somebody's age. So I think that's it. Thank you.